Uh, okay, so what book are we in? Let's try that. Somebody said Galatians. Very good. That's close enough. I'll take it this morning. Galatians. Galatians, written by Paul or Timothy, one of those two. Uh, okay. Yeah, we're in Colossians. So if you'll go ahead and go to Colossians, we hadn't made it out of the first chapter yet, but we are going to do it. Believe it or not, we're going to finish the book this summer. So hang in there. Round about August time, we'll finish the book of Colossians. We're going to do uh, a few verses today. Uh, last week, well, the last two weeks, uh, Ty Spradley has, uh, has been in here. Uh, I was out of town a couple weeks ago, and then last week, uh, I preached in the second service, so Ty uh, came in, did a really, really good job. Uh, if you would, uh, if you've missed any of those, whether you've been in Israel or for other reasons you've missed those, um, you can check those out on the podcast. So uh, I know with with series, sometimes you miss a few verses. That's a little frustrating. So if you want to catch back up, you can do that um, on the podcast. If you're just here, I know some of you are here for just uh, for four twenty four seven mini four seven. You like that? Come on, that's pretty creative. For a group of old guys, you know, that's pretty creative, right? Come on, many four seven? No? Okay. And Coke floats? Yeah? That'll be fun. Come on, Coke floats. I, Coke floats is a childhood thing for me. So when we were talking about it, it was like, we've got to do Coke floats. It's summertime. We have to do Coke floats. That's just what you do. And, uh, and I won't tell you who, but one of the, one of the guys in the meeting said, uh, suggested the cup size for the Coke floats, those little mini coffee cups. No. <laughs> Coke floats got to be in the big cups because there's a lot of fizz, right? There's a lot of the good fizz. When you Have you guys ever experienced a Coke float before? What is wrong with you people? You know the fizz in the Coke float when you, okay. Hmm. We need to pray. Uh, all right. So we're in Colossians. I tried a Coke float. If a Coke float doesn't work, we just need to get done. All right. Colossians, the first chapter. And we are, let's, uh. Let's pray. You know, I, I was thinking about, uh, we, we say this all the time in church, and I don't know why we say it. There's some things I, I wonder about that we say a lot, and then I wonder, why do we say that? This is one of those things that I wonder, why do we say that all the time? You, you ever heard in church, and I've said it a thousand times, I don't know why I say it, but when we, when we go, okay, let's pray, and all the stuff that you came in with, leave it at the door, right? You ever heard that? It's like, or, or a version of that, like, forget about all the stuff that you came in with, right? For, let's clear our minds, and let's, be, let's create some space for God to speak. It comes from a good place, doesn't it? Because we want to hear God, right? But what if God wants to deal with all the stuff you walked in with today? I was thinking about that this week. Is we, we say that all the time. Let's just clear space. But what if God wants to deal with you right in whatever it is that you did bring in here today? Whatever it is you are thinking about. What if God wants to speak to that? And what, whatever it is, whatever situation that you're going through, whatever, uh, whatever is happening... What if God wants you to bring it in here? And what if bringing it in here is part of us being authentic as a congregation to one another, right? Being able to come in and be honest about where we're at in our lives. Be honest before one another and be honest before God. Not just having to check it at the door and then come in and be Christian for a little while and then leave. But let's come and just experience God interrupting and being part of our lives with whatever it is you brought in. So I'm going to do the opposite this morning. And let's just, whatever you brought in, I just want you to... Uh, present that before God, whatever it is. Let's, let's, let's bring it in and be honest about it before the Lord. And let's ask him to this morning, whether it's in a time of teaching or something that, 
maybe somebody would, uh, would say or speak over you or in worship or whatever. Let's go, God, would you, this is what I'm, this is what I'm in. This is what I'm thinking about. This is what I'm dealing with. I don't want to check it at the door. I want to bring it to you. And let's present that before God this morning, just as an experiment. Is that fair? Can we just maybe try it? So, uh, let's just ask God, I'm gonna give you just a few seconds. Just ask God to speak to whatever you brought in this morning. Go ahead. Well, God, we just ask you to be present and near. You promised to do those things, and so we ask for it. We pray that you would, uh, God, whatever, there's so many things that have been mentioned, so many things that have been thought of in these last few moments. And God, we just ask that, uh, as only you can, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that you uh, would teach us in in the spot in life where we are right now, uh, that, that maybe we're uh, dealing with a certain situation. God, would you speak into that situation? Maybe we have some questions. God, would you bring uh, yourself into the answer of those questions? God, would you just be near and present where we are? And also, God, would you empower us to be uh, to be real and authentic with one another, that we would see ourselves uh, as part of one another's lives, and that we would see the value of congregation and community and what you've given us here by the blood of your son, by binding us together and unifying us. Uh, God, would we see that value this morning and live uh, real and honest before one another, not just on Sunday morning, but but in the week as well. So God, we're going to uh, get into your word, and we just ask that you would open our eyes and ears to the truth of this word, uh, that we wouldn't just gain knowledge, but that you, by your spirit, would impart real truth uh, to us, that you would heal us, transform us, uh, that you would bring us into the reality of the kingdom that you're speaking of uh, in these pages. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, in the first, particularly in the first chapter, uh, of the book of Colossians, there is a very, uh, very detailed uh, account of who Jesus is. Right, so we get uh, we get the real detailed explanation of who Jesus is, and we mentioned this in our uh, group last week. Uh, but a really helpful passage, I think, to read alongside of the first chapter of Colossians, particularly that first section, um, is the first chapter of John. So they're gonna they're gonna be uh, helpful to read next to each other. They complement each other really, really, really well. Um, but it's a very detailed, uh, what's called a, a Christology. So we, where we understand about the person of Jesus, about who, uh, about who he is. And just some incredible uh, words about him. I'm going to read back over these just to give us a review and a reminder. That you, again, you can, on the podcast, you can listen to Ty uh, teaching in detail these passages. But I'm going to start in verse 15 just to give us a refresher uh, in what we have already studied. It says, he is the image, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, by the blood of his cross. 
It is important that we recognize that a transition here is coming. Uh, we're going to study, today we're going to study particularly verse 21, 22, and 23. But I want you to kind of notice the transition. So he speaks in detail about who Jesus is. Firstborn of all creation, by him all things were created, right? And it holds this, this uh, or sorry, it gives us this uh, high, high, high view of Jesus. And, and in our small group last week, we talked about the importance of our, um, of our doctrine of Christ. It's important for us to know who Jesus, uh, who Jesus is. What do these words on this page actually mean? What does it mean that he's preeminent and that in him all things hold together? It's important for us to know and understand these things. And here's one of the major reasons why, right? It says, because, so he, this, is, this is who he is, right? It's almost like what we're getting, and you'll see this as we go into these next pages, uh, sorry, next verses, uh, it's almost like what we're getting is a resume, okay? We're getting this resume uh, of Jesus, uh, that he is the one that qualifies to do what, what it says that he, uh, that he does. And he's the only one with these qualifications, okay? He's the only one with deity. He's the only one that's also man. He's the only one that was the firstborn of all creation. And so then he can raise us from the dead, right? All these things hinge on who Jesus is. And I, I hope that you realize that, that all of what we have all of what we live in as Christians, all of what we claim as our theology, it hinges on Jesus. It hinges on, is he who he says that he is? If he's not, we are in trouble, right? Uh, the Bible would say that if, if he's not raised from the dead, then our, uh, we're to be pitied, that our faith is, is in vain, right? If, if these things that we claim are true about Jesus aren't true, then we're in trouble. But if they, if they are true, right, then there's a, there's a certain set of truths that now get relayed to us. So it's important that he's before all things. It's important that he's a partaker in creation. It's important that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. We have to understand these things. And here's, here's kind of where this momentum begins to shift. I think you can probably see it in verse 20. It says, and through him, now here we go, to reconcile all things, Uh, sorry, to reconcile to himself all things, okay? We've got this resume, and now we have this job that he's doing. He's reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, and he makes peace by the blood of his cross. Now let's focus on our our verses, because I think we're going to see why those those things said before were really important. I'm just going to read 21 through 23 slowly, and let's just soak it in. So he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So what we're going to do is just going to go through these few verses, but I hope that you see the real necessary shift here, the high view of Christ, and then what he has given us. Because he tells us then at verse 21, so let's start there. You guys ready to roll? Okay, verse 21. He begins to tell us now things about himself. So in verse 20, he says he reconciled all things to himself. Well, a reconciliation, what does that mean? That that if if something's going to be reconciled, then what does it first have to be? Yeah, it first has to be broken, right? First has to be be apart. 
So he says he reconciled all things to himself, and then he's going to shift the focus to us, and he says, and you, okay? So we apparently needed some of this reconciliation, this peace that was offered by the blood of the cross of Jesus. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Let's talk about that for a minute. Two things. Number one, he says that we're alienated and we're hostile in mind. And then the product of our alienation, the product of our hostility in our mind was what? It produced what? Doing evil deeds, okay? So the product of our alienation, you get that? So he says, you, who, this is your condition. You once were alienated and you once were hostile in mind and you were doing evil deeds, okay? Now, let's talk about what, what does that word mean? Let's just have a bit of a discussion here. Alienated, what does that word mean? Okay, separated, anything else? Isolated, foreign, right? Maybe like removed from, okay? So he says, this is, this is who you were. So you once were alienated. Now what is this? This gets a little more intense, not just alienated, because you could be alienated and you could kind of be the victim in alienation, right? You could just be, someone could remove themselves from you, but we're not just alienated, right? He says that we were Hostile in mind. Now let's talk about that for a second. What does that word hostile mean? Not like where you travel and stay. <laughs> okay. Angry. Aggressive, yeah. Okay, full of wrath. Dangerous to people around you, okay. Hostile. You're hostile towards something or someone. I think the, I think this is this is good. Any, anything else? Intent on wrongdoing. How about just against? Right. It, it, there's a there's an opposition. Right. And it and it comes with the mentality that you guys are all talking about. It comes with uh, an anger. It comes with uh, a vengeance. It comes right. It, it comes with those things. It's not just against, happy-go-lucky against. I don't know if that's even a thing, right? But there's, a, there's a, a fierce opposition. Now, where does he say that that opposition occurs? You were hostile where? In your mind, okay? Now, let's talk about that for, for just a minute. I think, that it, I think that it matters for us to understand this. Why are we hostile in our minds before, before Christ? Well, if you, if you think about, about uh, original sin, okay, which was produced... Now, we talk about original sin. Original sin for uh, humanity is obviously in who? For humanity, original sin. Come on, here we go, doctrine. Adam and Eve, okay, we got that. Here we go, <laughs> right? But sin actually originated, it was, uh, was in the heart of Lucifer. This is one of those discipleship school things that we, we kind of go in depth about. But it was originated in the heart of Lucifer where he says, I'm going to be like the most high God. I can be like he's going to be. And then what does he tell Adam and Eve? He basically tells them, right, if you, could, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will know what he knows. You will be like God. You essentially don't need him. This connection that you have with him, you don't actually need that because here's the knowledge of good and evil. Here's the understanding that you need. You can know, and if you know, then you will be like God. Okay? Now, have you ever, do you see that flash forward? Do you see that kind of that, uh, mentality in our culture today, that if you can just know, if you can just become the king of your reality, if you can understand enough, that gives us kind of this God complex, doesn't it? 
that the mind is celebrated. If I can just sharpen and tune my mind uh, enough, then I don't. Then what do I need God for? God is for the dumb people, right? This idea of uh, this belief in a higher power that's for the weak, uh, the, the intellectual doesn't need that because if in our mind we can gain a certain level of understanding, we don't need God. Humans from all, for all time have believed if we can just know enough, then we can be like God. This is where sin gets planted and this condition of sin uh, is, is in our heart. And so we have, uh, we have this idea that we can be like God and it creates hostility to God because what is the, I mean, think about it. If I, if I believe that I can know enough to be God and I don't need God, then God then becomes the enemy of my existence, doesn't he? Right? Do you think about that very often when you think about your salvation? Do you think about the fact that you weren't just neutral? That you had positioned yourself as an enemy of God. You were hostile to God, right? He says that you were alienated and that you were hostile in mind and it produced in you the product of that hostility. The product of that alienation was what? Evil deeds, right? So we're doing evil, evil deeds. The hostility of our mind, the rejection of God produces in us evil actions. I think we have to understand this. This is one of my soapbox things and so I won't do this long, but I think we really need to understand this as a church that the, the gospel isn't to bring bad behaving people into good behavior. People are behaving badly because they are right doing evil deeds because they're alienated. They're hostile in mind. They've rejected God. People don't need the gospel so they can start acting right. They need the gospel so they can be born new and know God. And from knowing him, that hostility in mind, that rejection of God goes away. And behavior begins to bear fruit according to the internal condition, according to what God has done on the inner man. So this is what he, he says that we once were. Now, this is really common. We don't talk about this much in, in church today. We don't really like to talk about our sin, right? We don't like to talk about the, the junk that we came from. But this is, this is a very, very, very common thing for the early church. Right? We, if you kind of track early church preaching, if you call it that, uh, there was uh, there was always an emphasis on and you once were right. They felt like it was so 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 important for them to constantly hold in their minds a view of what they were rescued from. So these words uh, that that Paul writes here, he says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This was a common practice of the early church to reference what we came from in our in our sin nature. And the question is, do you think about that often? Do we in a very, and I, I would say is, as you know, we've, you've heard this before many times, but as what Bonhoeffer said is a cheap grace, I think is a cheap grace era. We don't talk much about our sin. We don't come to church often to go, this is how terrible we once were, right? We go, the job of church is to make us feel good. Well, I think also we have to hold in our mind constantly what we were rescued from. Because if you don't know that you were an enemy of God, then you don't see the beauty of what his grace did to bring you in, not just as, okay, fine, I forgive you, but brought you in as a son, brought you in as a daughter. You were an enemy. And now you're not just a friend, you're a son or daughter. You've been given the inheritance of the son, right? And we have to hold that in our mind in order, I think, to see the beauty of grace on a day in and day out basis. So he says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... Verse 22, he has now reconciled. He has now 
reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So let's break this down into two little sections. Let's talk about how he's reconciled us. And he says these really important words, in his body of, uh, of flesh. We're going to talk about that first, and then we'll talk about how he has, uh, how he has presented, uh, how he's presented us. So he says in his body of flesh. So we've been reconciled in his body of flesh. He specifically points to the physicality of Jesus. Now, a couple of reasons why this happens. So contextually, one of the reasons why this is happening is because, or why he said this, is because in that day, the philosophy of that day would really discount the importance of the physical body, right? The highest level of human uh, existence was, the body was just kind of, uh, was kind of there, and they would think of the, the mind and the soul as the, the most important things of the body, uh, I'm sorry, the, of, of existence. And the body was just, was just kind of there, okay? So what he does is he's coming against kind of this current philosophy, and he's saying, no, actually, what Christ did in his flesh, the physicality of the death of Jesus. You, you realize this, that what he, uh, what he went through on the cross was not just a spiritual thing, that he was physically, flesh and blood, tortured and murdered on the cross, right? You know that that was a physical act. And he's presenting the importance of the physicality of the Son of God. And he also, this is tying into his uh, discussion in verse uh, 15 uh, through 20. But so, so you had the current philosophy of the day that thought the body wasn't really important. And then you have the, the Hebrew uh, worldview, which believes that the body is absolutely important. It is to be on the same playing field as the mind, as the soul, as the spirit, that God made us with a physical body, and it is to be celebrated, it is to be understood, right, that this is part of how God made us, and it's part of the beauty of creation. And we see this in the fact that God made Jesus what? Flesh. Man. Jesus didn't come and just uh, create the sacrifice for our sin in a spiritual way. He came like us. He became like us. And in becoming like us, he put on flesh and that flesh was tortured and killed as part of our, uh, as part of our redemption, okay? So I don't know if you understand that or if you've, if you've ever studied this much or not. I actually hadn't much at all until these last 10 weeks. So I'm gonna give you a little bit Look, if I have to go through it, you have to go through it too. I'm going to give you a little bit of some of my uh, classes here. <laughs> so the early church, uh, and this, this really surfaced. So in the, in the second and third century, the church uh, kind of stopped being heavily, heavily, heavily persecuted. And since they weren't being killed all the time, they had time to stop and talk about theology. There wasn't heavy persecution, and so they, they thought, okay, we better think about what we what we believe. And so these different ideas were coming up about who actually is Jesus. How is he like God? You know, John chapter one tells us that he came from God. How? And they began to define the things that we know now today as just normal theology. We wouldn't even think about them, but these guys were wrestling through and they were asking big questions of what is, what, what does it mean that Jesus came from God? What does it mean that Jesus came in the flesh? How does this actually work? One of these discussions actually centered around this discussion on whether or not Jesus actually became man. And just so you kind of know how it works, basically in the early church, someone would have an idea 
And if the entire group of uh, bishops and people in charge of the church or the entire group looked at that idea and thought, that's not quite right, they would label him a heretic. They would kick him, kick him out of church. They would call a council. That council would say what's right and good. And then anyone else that agreed with that guy is out of church. Sound like church today? Yeah, it's kind of been the same way for uh, lots and lots and lots and lots of years. But it was never, heresy typically didn't come up as somebody intentionally wanting to divide the church. It would come up because one guy would say, well, I think that, for example, I think that maybe uh, Jesus is, is like God but because he came from God, there was a time when Jesus didn't actually exist. Now, do we believe that today? No, we don't. We believe that Jesus was eternal. But this guy, he wanted to defend the, the, the high view of God. And so he says, well, maybe there's this time that Jesus didn't exist. Well, they flip out about that. He gets kicked out. And, and we, we kind of define then, what do we believe about Jesus? Well, that Jesus is the same substance as the Father and has been eternal just like the Father, right? So this is kind of how it would go. Well, one of these conversations centers around the, are you guys interested? Okay, <laughs> one of these guys uh, claims that Jesus wasn't actually, essentially he didn't actually have a, uh, the, the flesh, right? That this is kind of a more, of a more of a spiritual idea. Well, the church flips out about this. This one's kind of a little bit more somewhat humorous. Uh, basically, one group calls a council. To, uh, and they only get the people that are on their team in this council, and they write up what they believe and then say, okay, that's done. And then the guys on the other team are thinking, wait a minute, you didn't include us in this council. How does that work? So then they have their own. It just sounds like church, doesn't it, right? Lots of bickering and arguing. Just kidding. I'm just making a joke. Smile. Okay. So here's the deal. In the 5th century, they come up with this, it's called the Chalcedonian definition. And I'm going to read it to you. They wrestle and wrestle and wrestle about how is it that Jesus uh, came as flesh what were the natures of jesus is he divine and human and here it is it says following then the holy fathers we all with one voice teach that it is to be confessed that our lord jesus christ is one and the same god perfect in divinity listen to this and perfect in humanity true god and true human with a rational soul and a body of one substance, that was a big deal, that word substance, of one substance with the Father in his divinity, and of one, this is important, and of one substance with us in his humanity, in every way like us, with the only exception of sin, begotten of the Father before all time in his divinity, and also begotten in, these, in the latter days in his humanity of Mary, the virgin bearer of God. Well, some people had some problems with that virgin bearer of God, but nonetheless, here we go. This is the, this is the idea. That Jesus is of one substance, that word substance is important, with the Father, but he's also of one substance with us, meaning that he is exactly like us in his humanity. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. And let's listen to these words. Is that important? Why did the early church argue about this? Is it important that he's the same substance, that he's divine and human? Let's listen. In verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Listen to these words in verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers. What are those next three words? In every respect. That's why the early church would be so adamant that he is like us. He's the same substance as us. He'd be like us in every respect so that, and here's why it's important, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So is it important that he is of the same substance as the Father? Is it important that he's divine? Yes. He has to be divine because if he's not divine, then he cannot. Then if he's not divine, then he has sin and he cannot be the propitiation for our sin. Is it important that he's of the same substance as you and me? That he was like us in every respect. Is it important? Absolutely, it's important because he then qualifies as the one who is able to be a substitute for us because he's like us in every respect. Had he not been, he couldn't stand in your place. The divinity of Jesus is important and the humanity of Jesus is important. The early church fought this out and we just kind of inherit this. We just say it now. Was Jesus human? Yeah, we say yeah. But they fought for it. They wrestled in it because it's vital that he's divine and human. And so in our, uh, go back to Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, it says that he, uh, uh, let's see, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So now that that's clear, here's what, that fleshly, physical death gets us. In order to present you holy, I want you to just, look, I know it's a church word, but I want you to think about what's being said here. You is the word. You are being presented holy, blameless and above reproach before him. Whoa. You know, I I, I think that if we thought often of verse 21, we would be blown away by verse 22. If you thought often about what it meant that you were once alienated and hostile, and this shift that occurs, that this one that was alienated and hostile, this enemy of God, that he reconciled you in his body of flesh, that his physical death was the propitiation for your sin. And now, here's the deal, you're being presented holy and blameless. Who in here qualifies for either of those things? None of us. Holy and blameless and above reproach. But you have to know that though you do not qualify, it is exactly how he sees you. It is, in fact, who you are, no matter how you feel. 
that if you come to Christ, if it is he that you have come to, if it indeed it is this gospel which you have believed on, and if this is this Christ that you have come to, not some fake deal, if this, is the, if this is the guy, right, the divine son of God that has made substitutionary death for the forgiveness of your sin, if that is the gospel that you have believed, I don't care how you feel this morning, you're holy and blameless and above reproach. And you can cheapen the gospel on both sides of that thing. You can cheapen the gospel by still wallowing in the fact of what you once were, right? You're not hostile anymore. You're not alienated anymore. If you keep claiming that, you're cheapening the gospel. What you are, no matter what you feel, what you are is holy and blameless and above reproach, if indeed Christ is your Lord. Don't cheapen the gospel by saying anything less. You're holy and blameless and above reproach because of the work of the cross. The other way that you can cheapen it is by going, I never really was that hostile, but thanks, Jesus, for what you did. Don't cheapen it the other way by not knowing how deep your sin was. Don't cheapen it the other way by not remembering where you once were. And listen, I don't care how talented or pretty you are, you didn't dig yourself out of that hole. that the divine had to put on flesh and be crucified for that hole to be dug out of. That the costly and precious blood of the Son of God was shed for you to come out. Now, because it was, I'm holy and blameless and above reproach. But it was costly for me to be holy and blameless and above reproach. You with me? And then he has this word, this scary, 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 scary word. We all hate the beginning of verse 23. If, ah, <laughs> if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right. So now there's another shift that happens. It's amazing how many little transitions we can find in just a few verses, right? But there, this, the, and just so you know, if we, if we were to kind of read this passage over again, verse 21 through, or sorry, the, the whole book, verse 21 through 23 set the tone for the entirety of the book. So there is a, a dramatic shift in these verses. So the, the, the first section of chapter one is kind of the setup. And then this is kind of what's going to say, this is the thesis in a sense statement for the entirety of the book. So all of these themes are going to be gone through in the rest of the book. Okay. So just that, that's why it is laid out the way that it is. But he says that you're presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, shifting not from the hope of the gospel you've heard. Okay, so the, uh, up until this point, who has the focus been on? Uh, of all the first chapter, up and really up until this point, who has the focus been on? This is the classic Sunday school answer. There it is, right? Listen, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit will get you right about 80% of the time in this room. Okay, so that's the one. Jesus... Right? It's all been about Jesus. But now there's a shift. And what does that shift go to? Now, now who are we looking at? Yeah, ourselves. If indeed, who? You. Now there's a work which is on us. 
right? There's this, there's this work that he presents as Jesus does, and then he says, okay, if indeed you, then he talks about being stable and steadfast, okay? So we got to look at this. Because the first thing that we like to do is we like to freak out, and we like to go, does this mean that we can lose our salvation, right? That's the first question that A.S. asks about this passage every single time. Hold your horses, and let's, let's work through it, all right? You guys weren't freaking out, so I don't know why I said that. You guys just look calm as can be, right? <laughs> Like those calm people on the back on the airplane cards, right? Little joke, okay. Uh, so, if indeed you continue in the faith, uh, steadfast. And the question we have to answer is, what is that? What is that if? Uh, what does that if mean? Okay. The major, because the major emphasis has been placed on the work of Christ and now it is shifting to the faith uh, of the believer, what we have to understand first is that this is not a passage that's about the security of the believer, okay? And when I say the security of the believer, I mean that that question of uh, can I lose my salvation, can I not lose my salvation? Uh, And and let me just touch on that a little bit. I'm not going to go into that uh, in detail because that's not what this passage uh, is about, and I'll I'll tell you why here in just a minute. Uh, But... But there are, uh, there are views within the Christian world that your salvation is something which can be, uh, which can be lost uh, and then gained again, okay? That is something that is taught uh, within, the, within uh, the Christian world. Uh, I, I would say that uh, I think the grounding for that theology is, is pretty weak. There's a few passages that get kind of taken uh, that, that, where that comes from. Many of you may have heard that. You may have come from that, come from that background um, and that's that's certainly certainly fine. Uh, I would say, by and large, the majority of the of the church does not believe that to be true. Okay, so the majority of the Christian world does not believe that the Bible indicates anywhere that we can gain and lose our salvation. And here's the reason why. This is one of those things that's so important for us. The reason why is because then it begins to uh, to look like we have a uh, a role to play in the actual completion of our salvation. Okay, so it does a couple of things. Number one, it places some emphasis on uh, on us in order to actually save us. Now, do you have a job to play? Yes, but it's not the job of saving. It's the job of coming to the one that saves. You with me, right? So, that, so that's one real problem with it is that it creates a, a question of do I, have, do I have any power to save myself? And the answer, according to Scripture, is absolutely not. The other problem that it creates is the, uh, is the fact of Jesus' sacrifice. Was it able to save you or not becomes the question. Either the sacrifice in the blood was appropriate and costly enough to save me or not. Because if it can lose me, then it wasn't big enough to save me. If it can gain me and lose me, then it wasn't enough to save me. And we know, where is Jesus right now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, right? He's not, is he going back to the cross? If I mess up bad enough, is he going to have to make another sacrifice? No, right? That the sacrifice of Christ was one time and for all. And the book of Hebrews tells us that, that it's one time, that it will only happen once. So if I come into relationship with Jesus, if I believe on him and his blood covers me, then that blood is not capable of losing me. Salvation is secure. Now, there is room, and we're not going to have that conversation today, but there is room for discussion on the authenticity of salvation. And I would tell you this, that I do believe that there are many, many, many droves of people that sit in churches today that call themselves Christians that are absolutely not Christians. 
that have never actually come and believed on Christ for salvation, that have never been born again. They're Christian by name and name alone. And can they lose their salvation? No, because there's none there, right? And I think that that, that conversation slides into this one of gaining and losing uh, salvation. And I have deeper questions about whether there was salvation actually there to begin with, okay? So that's, but, but just for your information, by and large, the majority of the church uh, agrees and holds to the biblical definition of salvation, which is that it cannot be lost. But there are small pieces that say uh, that it can be lost and then gained again. However... This passage is not about that. If you, de- if you uh, kind of construct this in its original language, we understand that the if there is not an if to say, if you, right, if, if you uh, do your part or not, right, it's saying uh, if indeed this is actual salvation. The emphasis is not placed uh, on an if like, well, if you continue or if you don't. That's not the if here. The if is if this faith of yours is stable and steadfast, right? If this is authentic and real, if you've actually come to Christ is the emphasis uh, in, in this particular passage. Okay. So he says, if, now the, there's, there's something important here. So that you can't water down or cheapen salvation. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel uh, that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. So what is stable and steadfast not shifting mean? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's do this somewhat quickly. He's going to say something very similar here. And and we'll, we'll understand why here in just a minute. There's an urging... In many of these letters, there's an urging for there to be a solid stance, a, a holding to the gospel, okay? He says in verse 15, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 1, he says, Now I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There he uses the words, if you hold fast to the gospel I preached to you. Now, why in the world would there be urging in both of these scenarios and in many other places we could look at? Why is there such an urging to hold fast, to remain stable? You read the books of First and Second Peter. It's all about remaining uh, connected to this gospel that has, been, uh, that has been preached. Why is there such an urging for that? What are your thoughts? If I were to preach that message to you this morning, why do you think I would preach it? That's right. Yeah, outside circumstances play a huge role here. There's immense pressure on the church. Immense cultural pressure. Uh, Im- immense pressure for them to uh, to conform. There's there's pressure on the side uh, of of the of the culture, as I talked about, of the the current uh, philosophy that would not, that would reject the the values and the beliefs of the Christian world of the, of the Christian 
uh, individual. There's pressure even from, from the Jewish side because you remember that now this, we, we believe that Colossians was written mainly to a Gentile audience, that the overwhelming man, uh, amount here would be the Gentile audience. But you've you got to remember that the, the seeds of Christianity are, are in Judaism, and, and that's a different topic for a different day. They're not really different. But anyway, Jesus was Jewish. Paul, Jesus, all these are Jewish guys, right? Telling us about the fulfillment of, of the Jewish faith. Okay, but anyway, so right there's so there's pressure in Judaism that's saying this is not the messiah this is, don't you know, it was viewed within the Jewish world that Christianity was viewed as kind of this radical sect not of Christianity not this new thing but this radical sect of Judaism that was claiming that Jesus is the messiah these are kind of the oddballs of Judaism so there's pressure within mainline Judaism there's pressure within the culture and so over and over and over again we get these urgings from writers to hold fast don't slip away don't move away this is Jesus this is who he is your faith is not in vain and we hear this over and over and over again and i think that we can be duped into not hearing that message today i think that we can if we're not careful we can go oh, we live in the we live in america it's free it's like right there's no there's no pressure and I would say to you that, I, I, that yes, and thank God that we live in a free country. And thank God for those who have paid the price in order for that freedom. And we ought to tell the stories of those sacrifices. Those sacrifices are a picture of what we believe is the ultimate sacrifice, life for life, right? It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. However, we can get, I think, tricked into believing that there's no pressure because it's not overt pressure. Now, we can say, well, the Supreme Court just said, well, forget what the Supreme Court just said. I'm just telling you, we don't live where there's extreme pressure. You're not going to walk out that door and there's extreme pressure like what was being faced here. And so we believe that there's no pressure. If you believe that there's no pressure, then you will be deceived. If you believe that there's nothing that's coming against your faith, trying to water down what you believe, then you will be deceived. And I think we ought to be aware of the cultural forces that come against what we believe, of the cultural forces that come against what the gospel actually says and how we're to live our lives. If we're not aware of those things, I think we'll be kind of just swept along and this watered-down Christianity uh, will emerge where we say that we're Christians, but there's nothing actually there because we don't know what we believe. We've been so uh, tainted by what our culture says that we should believe. So this is about holding fast to what is right and what is true and not being moved away from the hope of the gospel. So he says the last little bit, he says, uh, the, uh, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, what we're going to see here, this is really cool, what we're going to see is that, again, this section is going to tell us about everything else that's coming in the book. It's just going to be in reverse order. So Paul, he says, I became a minister. The next thing we're going to learn about is Paul proclaiming the gospel. Okay? Uh, that we, we talked about continuing the faith and the gospel that you've heard. That's what's going to be right after that. Okay? And then the last thing we're going to talk about is the holiness of believers received, uh, sorry, achieved through Christ Jesus. And that'll, that'll inform us for the rest of the book. Those three topics are going to carry us through the rest of the book. So this is really important. This is a, this is a scene-setting section, okay? You guys good? Learn anything today? Maybe just a little? If just a little, that's okay. God, help us, to, uh, help us to ingest this truth. Help us to know you in a deeper way through your word. Help us to hold fast to the gospel which we've heard. And we just, God, would you remind us of what we came from? Not only you can do it without making us just feel awful, but maybe we just need to realize for a moment 
what we came from? What does it mean that we were alienated, that we were hostile to you? God, would you show us that? And God, as you do, man, would we just see the beauty of how huge your grace is? That me, when I was alienated and hostile, you died on my behalf, and now I'm presented holy and blameless. God, would we see the enormity of what you've done? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, see you guys next week. Actually, I'll see you tomorrow night. We'll talk about it. Bye.